Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Hi there, Zelda. How are you? It is a day in Chicago, let me tell you. But is it, if it is it foggy there like it is down here? Yes, it's very foggy, although the temperature's lovely. It's like in the mid-40s, and I went over to a friend's house a little bit earlier, and it just felt like spring. I just wore a, a shirt and a hoodie instead of like the layers of Arctic gear that I usually have to wear, <laughs> and it was so nice. You know Ugh. that you're from the Midwest when the temperature gets in the 40s and you start opening windows after oh, it's yeah. been winter for a while. And and mm-hmm. I've been doing that, rolling down the windows, driving, and today it got up in the 50s here. Oh, sweet. But my husband tells me there's a cold front coming, so mm. not Arctic temperatures like we had to deal with for a while there, but cooler than today. Are we going to get more snow? Do you know? I don't think so. He was indicating so that sad. temps would be warmer than normal. Okay, that's nice. At least in my region. So I can't speak to Chicago. Yeah, Chicago's special, isn't it? Yes, you Darn guys it. have the lake effect. Well, for those listening, I guess we should say who we are. We're Murderous Roots. And we're so glad to have you with us. <laughs> and did you see that comment somebody made? Uh, so somebody was, somebody I follow on Facebook and former blogger, because I used to blog, and so I know her, she just asked this question, is there something you're proud of? And I'm like, oh, I'm proud of my podcast. And somebody, I don't I don't know who the person is, I don't think she's a friend of Zelda's either, said, that's my favorite. Oh, that's lovely. And I about like, ah! <laughs> that's so lovely. Well, now I'm going to go look it up and see who it was. Yes. Did so, you send her a little thank you note and flowers? I, I, did, I did thank her there, and no, I did not send anything, but I was just like, oh my gosh, we're somebody's favorite, and they're not related or don't know us. That's so nice. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so nice. So it was so exciting, and those of you who are listening, and if you really do like us, I mean, we have the Facebook page. I'd love to see y'all participating, because I think Facebook's been trying to hide those posts. Like, mm. I'm only like 30 people have been seeing them. And I'm like, how is that possible if they're not hiding it? Um, So a little interaction might help us there. And you, we can see you. But also, just leave us a review on the podcast. Five stars would be great. <laughs> and a comment. <laughs> because and then more people will likely hear us. Apparently, that helps boost us a little. But nice. I just, I was so excited. Well, we have a really fun one today. And, oh, yes. And, and in this case, we're, it's kind of like the Black Dahlia. We're dealing with a victim of a murder herself. Mm-hmm. But she was not exactly the most innocent person in the world. Oh, no. Oh, no, she's not. <laughs> so who do, do you we have? Do you want to say her name? No, I want <laughs> you to tell us, Zelda. Okay. I'm so excited that we are talking about Belle Star <laughs> now. Let me tell you, it was it was interesting on so many levels researching Bellstar because 
she's become sort of a larger than life legend, like Billy the Kid or Jesse James or any of those folks. And what comes along with that is there's a lot of great stories about her that have absolutely no bearing to truth whatsoever. Right. And so she's kind of developed this whole like Robin Hood-esque thing about her. And I honestly think, though, Bell Star is ultimately the story of a spoiled little rich girl who didn't think she had to work for a living. <laughs> and I also think that had the Civil War not come along, she probably never would have had the opportunity to become the bandit queen. Right. So, you know, as I said, most of what I think we know about Bell, what we think we know about Bell Star is really a dramatization of her life. Her story smack of Robin Hood, robbing from the rich, giving to the poor, but taking a large slice for herself in the meantime. But there are some facts we know for sure. Mm -hmm. So Myra Maybell Shirley, who later became known as Bell Star, was born on February 5th, 1848, near Carthage, Missouri. She was the daughter of John Shirley and his third wife, Elizabeth Hatfield Shirley. A pianist, Bell grew up in a household with her parents and their other children, including much older half-siblings from her father's first marriages. Her elder brother, John Addison, called Bud, influenced her greatly, teaching how to ride and shoot, as did the fact that she grew up in the years leading up to the Civil War in Indian Territory. So her childhood actually reminds me of Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie, right? Her dad was wealthy and she had an excellent education in all the things a proper lady should know, including mm -hmm. piano lessons in yes. the quote unquote Wild West, right? Yeah. Well, the Civil War changed all that. The Shirley family were Southern sympathizers and slave owners, and so they sided with the Confederacy. When those damn Jayhawks from Kansas invaded... <laughs> As part of the Missouri-Kansas border wars, her older brother Bud, along with a number of other local men, signed up with Quantrill's Raiders, and the family was pleased as punch about that. Well, at least until he was killed by Union soldiers in 1864. Still, Dad Shirley's business was ruined as a result of the constant raiding and the burning of Carthage, so moved the family to Texas in 19... In, I'm sorry, I wrote down 1964. <laughs> that would be 1864. Yes. So how did Little Belle even meet those desperados that later filled her diary? Well, in 1866, a group of former Quantrill's raiders, friends of her older brother, and most likely known by the family from before the Civil War, used the Shirley Homestead in Texas as a hideout from the feds. This is where young Belle became friends with the younger brothers, Cole, Jim, Bob, and John, and Jesse James, as well as reviving a friendship from Carthage with James Reed, who became her husband on November 1st, 1866. So after they were married, Jim moved into the Shirley household, which was near Skyene, which if you don't know Texas, it's close enough to Dallas that we could just kind of say Dallas area. And it doesn't really exist anymore now because it's yeah. considered Dallas now. Yeah, it's like a neighborhood. You yeah, know? <laughs> there's like Skyene Road and that's about yeah, it. That's it. There's a history there, though. So yes, Dallas I had to look it up forget. to see where it was. Uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, so later, he actually became a salesman for a Dallas saddle and bridle maker. And by late 1867, he and Bell were living on the Reed Homestead in Missouri. Early in September 1868, Bell gave birth to her first child, Rosie Lee. Bell adored the baby, because who doesn't adore babies, and referred yeah. to her as her Pearl. And that was her nickname. Then that stuck. That's how she was yeah. known her entire life. Mm -hmm. Soon after Pearl's birth, Belle's brother Ed Shirley was shot and killed for stealing horses. So we don't know a whole lot about what's going on during that time, but we it seems that she did return to Texas for the funeral, show off the new baby, 
and spent a few months with her mother-in-law back in Missouri. Some of her biographers got super creative with what was going on with her at the time. But, you know, seriously, the neighbor, <laughs> the Reeds were like, no, they just kind of hung out at the Reeds house and they went to church. Right. So, and it is interesting because Belle actually went to church quite a bit throughout her entire life, was very generous to the church mm -hmm. and was a fundraiser for the church. If you can say basically like conning people out of money and giving it to the church would be a great fundraiser for the church. Yeah, I read some interesting stories about her coming into church and she was dressed like a, the preacher because he couldn't come to church that day. Oh, really? I and pretend to be him. Yeah. And then she went to take, do the collection. And this man who was rather, rather wealthy had like a five cent. And he goes, well, this is the smallest I have. Otherwise, I just have this $10. And she goes, well, give me, I can get you change. And gives her the $10 and she gives him the five cent piece back. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's funny. That's so her. <laughs> oh, my gosh. So her husband, Jim Reed, though, spent very little time at home because farming wasn't really what he was called to do with his life. Mm -mm. He, he, he needed a fancier life than that. So he raced horses and then he fell in with Tom Starr, who was a murderous Cherokee, so notorious that he was an embarrassment to the Cherokee nation. Tom Starr's father, James, had been heavily involved in tribal politics. The Cherokee were split into two hostile factions in 1845 when James Starr was assassinated. His son, Tom, swore vengeance and mm. carried out his oath with over 20 murders. He was later pardoned because of a unique quirk in, federal, in the Federal Peace Treaty. And that actually comes into play with several things that happen in Bell Star's life later. Mm -hmm. After the Civil War, Tom Starr and his sons built a thriving business selling whiskey and rustling. Jim Reed, Bell Star's husband, participated in their nefarious activities, then killed a man to avenge the death of his older brother, Scott Reed, who'd been gunned down. A writ was issued against Reed for murder and for bringing whiskey into Indian territory. He was now a full-fledged fugitive. A triple F. Ooh. This, coupled yes. with threats... <laughs> this, coupled with threats from friends of the man he had slain, caused him to seek a healthier climate. He, Belle, and Pearl headed for California early in 1869. Mm -hmm. Belle gave birth to their second child, James Edwin, on February 22, 1871, while the Reeds were still on the Pacific coast. Later in March, Jim was accused of passing counterfeit money. The subsequent investigation saw that, hey, he's wanted for a murderer. So the authorities went out after him. He fled for Texas on horseback, sending his family back via stagecoach. Now, it's iffy as to when he actually got to Texas. He seems to have taken right. a long way back. Eventually, he <laughs> got there. And Cole Younger assisted them in setting up on a farm outside Syene, where his parents lived, where her parents mm -hmm. lived. Well, soon rumors spread through the neighborhood that livestock was missing, and Jim Reed had drawn a number of unsavory characters to him. Later, in 1873, he and his band of cutthroats were involved in two cold-blooded murders. Rewards were offered for their apprehension. Jim escaped to Indian Territory, taking Belle with him, but they left the two kids with the grandparents. Probably mm -hmm. a good plan there, actually. Right. So then, on November 19, 1873, in the Choctaw Nation, Reed and two others robbed the Watt Grayson family of $30,000. Grayson and his wife were hanged from a tree until he agreed to disclose the hiding place of his money. Some of Bell's biographers say she participated in the robbery dressed as a man. No member of the Grayson family, nor any of the hired hands who witnessed the robbery, mentioned a woman dressed as a man or even a slightly built man. So this seems to be, again, another rumor. However, it did cause them to return to Texas, and Belle left her husband, moving in with her parents. 
She apparently objected not only to his life of crime, but also the fact he'd taken up with another woman. I think her name was yeah. Rosa. And uh, so Belle and Jim had been together about seven years-ish. But Jim Reed was just like, hells yeah, I love me this outlaw life. So he just kept on robbing stages, stealing livestock. And several posses nearly caught them, but they always managed to elude them, escaping to Indian Territory. Reed returned to Texas alone in August of 1874. One of his former acquaintances, John Morris, had been deputized especially to capture Reed for the price on his head. Reed, unaware of this, wound up traveling with Morris. The two stopped at a house for a meal, and while they were eating, Morris ordered Reed to throw up his hands. Instead, Reed flipped the table over and bolted for the door. He was shot and killed. Several biographers wrote that Belle denied that the dead man was her husband in order to keep Morris from receiving the reward money. However, people who knew Reed identified the corpse and he did get the reward money. Now, Reed's death did leave Belle pretty destitute. She hadn't really gotten a lot from his ill-gotten gains. I mean, he feared to spend it on his girlfriend, apparently, or God knows what else. Whiskey, song. Gambling. Gambling. Damn outlaws. And the next years are a little bit of a mystery. She appears to have sold her farm and spent a lot of time at the Reed home in Missouri. But on June 5th, 1880, Belle was undaunted by a failed marriage and married Sam Starr, the handsome three-quarter Cherokee son of Tom Starr, who you may recall we discussed as one of the outlaws that was helping Jim Reed and all of the banditry. Sam's age was listed as 23 and Belle's age is 27, although she was actually 32 at the time. So they cleared land and settled into a cabin at Younger's Bend on the Canadian River about 70 miles southwest of Fort Smith, Arkansas. And just a little interesting factoid, the name Younger Bend was, according to one account, given to this place by Tom Starr because he'd been so impressed by the daring do of the Younger Gang. In any case, it was Indian Territory and outlaw country, and they were visited by many seeking refuge. Belle didn't really encourage these activities. It was her hope, supposedly, uh, to live <laughs> out her time in peace. And there's actually no real evidence that Belle was the leader of any outlaw band. Um, no. She just, like, slept with a lot of them. <laughs> so, after their marriage, neither Belle nor Sam seems to have appeared in any official record until July 31st, 1882, when they were charged with horse stealing. And it's so banal that, I mean, the story is just so, really, really? Yeah. Anyway, they had uh, they'd been working horses on a neighbor's land and sought his permission to pen some of the animals in his corral. He agreed, but when he saw the horses, he pointed out that a couple belonged to other neighbors. The stars were like, meh, and then they sold the herd, and the neighbors brought charges. So they appeared in district court at Fort Smith on November 7th, 1882. The grand jury handed up a true bill for larceny in Indian Territory. Tom Starr made bail for them, and they returned to Younger's Bend to await trial. So this is fun. The, there was a four-day trial, okay? Yeah. It was held in Hanging Judge, Isaac C. Parker's court, early in March 1883. Bell was found guilty on both counts, and Sam on only one, since apparently the court lacked jurisdiction in cases where one Indian committed a crime against another. One of the neighbors oh, was an Indian, and one was a white person. So it's interesting. Judge Parker sentenced Sam to 12 months and Bell to two six-month terms in the House of Correction in Detroit. The judge explained his rare display of leniency by pointing out that this was a first conviction for both defendants and that he hoped they would decide to become decent citizens. <laughs> now, 
And this is from a hanging judge. This is from a hanging judge. Now, again, if you think about, I mean, you know, here was this educated, well-spoken woman, you know. Oh, yeah. Seems to have hit on some hard times. He probably had a lot of sympathy for her. And she was not above using her womanly wiles to see, you know, to get things to go her way. So I think it was just sort of a, she charmed him. And thus, they got an easy sentence. So the prison apparently was a model institution actually dedicated to education and reformation in addition to punishment. Sam Starr, though, showed no interest in learning and was assigned to hard labor. Bell was, again, reputed, who knows, to have charmed the warden into appointing her as his assistant. In any case, the stars were on their way back to Younger's Bend after serving nine months of one-year sentences. Old Tom Starr kept the place up for them. Belle and Sam soon busied themselves getting ready for spring planting. Seems she gained a little bit of weight while she was in prison because, pro- you know, they have to feed you there. And, right. And, well, and she's know. not running around riding her horses. and Exactly. There's yeah. not the same physical exercise. And this is, you know, where we hear more about her sense of style because she really loved to wear her little black velvet riding habit. And she rode side saddle, mm-hmm. which is very unusual for an outlaw. And she carried her six shooter. And you see her six shooter in almost all of her public photos where she's right. wearing a big hat with a big feather. And she liked to read and play a piano um, that she actually had freighted into Younger's Bend. So really, she's just like us, Denise. She is. We're, we're the same. She likes to read like, into music, you know. Mm-hmm. So one little factoid I came across was that after she left prison, she briefly worked in a Wild West show, playing the part of an outlaw bandit who held up a stagecoach. I missed that one. That's cool. So I just thought that was kind of fun. So now I could go into the details of the times Belle was arrested for various things, but she was only ever convicted twice in her life, both times related to horse thievery. So we're going to fast forward because mm-hmm. there's so many great stories about Bell's life, we could be here for hours and hours and hours. Oh, there's so much. It's so colorful. But we're going to fast forward to nearing the end. Mm. During a friend's Christmas party on December 17th, 1886, Sam Starr got into a gunfight with his old nemesis, Frank West. Both men hit their marks and died of their wounds. But, you know, Bell didn't remain alone for long. She hooked up informally. Of course not. Yeah. Because she was not a woman who was meant to be alone. No. She knew the importance of having a man to help her mm-hmm. afford things. Exactly. So she hooked up informally with a few bandits she'd met. And in 1889, Belle entered into her third marriage with a much younger bandit by the name of Jim July. This marriage, however, would be the death of her. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> The relationship was particularly stormy. Apparently, after one fierce quarrel, July was reported to have offered an accomplice $200 to kill his wife. When the offer was rejected, July screamed, Hell, I'll kill the old hag myself and spend the money for whiskey. A few days later, on February 3rd, 1889, Belle Starr was shot to death from an ambush on a lonely country road. She was 41 years of age. So an investigation was made into her death, and several suspects were questioned, including a neighbor she'd quarreled with named Watson, who was an outlaw she'd had business dealings with, her husband July, her son Ed, even her daughter Pearl, who was a prostitute and bordello owner. Uh, I would like to make a quick correction there. She was not a prostitute and bordello owner yet. Yet? Yeah. Oh, that happened afterwards? That happened after. Oh, I didn't really pay a whole lot of attention to that. Okay. That's okay. I mean, it's true. She ended up being a prostitute and a bordello owner, but not yet. Okay. So apparently, Belle had caught July fooling around with the younger girl, who had let, which led to, you know, unhappiness in the marriage, one would assume. Belle was estranged from her son, Ed, and rumors speculated she routinely beat him with a bullwhip. 
Even Pearl might have killed her mother because Belle had interfered with Pearl's marriage to the father of her child. And then, just a few weeks after Belle's death, a deputy who was on July's trail mortally wounded him. So Belle was buried in the front yard of the cabin at Younger's Bend. Months later, Pearl hired a stonecutter to mount a monument over her mother's grave. On top of the stone was carved an image of her favorite mare, Venus. On the stone was this inscription, Shed not for her the bitter tear, nor give the heart to vain regret. Tis but the casket that lies here, the gem that fills it sparkles yet. And that is the story of the life of Bellstar. Oh, I have so much to share with you. I'm so excited because and just the the drama even around Bellstar. There wasn't even Bellstar herself. Oh, I have so much good information, but we'll get there. Because mm-hmm. I'm taking notes so I can remember to go back to certain things that you mentioned. Some things I Excellent. might correct because Feel free. the public information is wrong. Oh, and, wow. And that there might be a little bit more to some stories than you knew. Because it, it's interesting how legends grow and they change. Mm-hmm. And then when you look at the official record, or at least the newspapers at the time and stuff, how the information's a little different. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so excited. Well, and, and to build that suspense, I'm going to approach Bell's um, tree a little different than I've done in the past with other Ooh, people. I mean, Because this time we're going to go all the way back on her tree and then we're going to come down to her and her children. So we're before I start, though, I have a few notes from what I'm about to share. I got a lot of my information from the Shirley Family Association, which is a website and it covers all Shirley's around the world and their family trees and all of that. And they have done a lot of research. It's documented. I trust the information I got from there. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, I might have found some things were a little wrong, but they weren't like really like screwed up wrong. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then some things disagreed with other people, and I just don't know which one's more accurate. And my family will make a cameo appearance in this episode. I'm very intrigued. Before we start, we're going to talk about the Palatinate. Now, do you know anything about this, Zelda? I know nothing. No. It's a little mini history lesson. As I mentioned before, Germany was not a united country until the 1870s. Before then, it was a group of duchies that formed as a result of the structure of the Holy Roman Empire, which maintained a medieval political structure for hundreds of nearly sovereign states. And it was like that for years. In fact, the end of the Holy Roman Empire didn't happen until the early 19th century. Ultimately, this may have been part of its undoing, though, but we won't get into too much of that. But by the late 17th century, there was a couple things going on as well. Calvinism had become widely accepted in the empire, the Holy Roman Empire. There was some persecution from people who accepted and embraced Calvinism. So it wasn't perfect, but it was being embraced. One such territory of the empire was the electorate of the Palatinate. It was administered by the Count Palatine of the Rhine. So this person changed over time. He was the one who was in charge of this area. Now, the Palatinate was further fragmented into 45 secular and ecclesiastical sections, some small, others large. And this was all along the Rhine River with land on the west and some to the east, going a little bit into the Bavarian region, but not a lot. The area today that still exists is called the Rhineland Faults as a state of Germany, and Faults stands for Palatine. And it's an area I'm actually familiar with because I lived there as a child. My dad was... Really? (laughs) Yes. My dad was in the Air Force, and we were stationed in that area twice. Wow. First in Bitburg, and second in um, at Ramstein, and we lived... In Kaiserslautern, basically. And Kaiserslautern's right in the middle of all that. And we visited the former capital of the Palatinate, Heidelberg, several times. And I've been in the castle. I 
to this day, I swear if I went in there, I would know my way around. I doubt it, but we went there that often. That's so cool. Yeah. And I saw all the Holy Roman Empire, the baths and all that when we lived there. And, oh my gosh. Uh, a good chunk of my childhood was spent in Germany. I would say about close to six years. Wow. Anyhow, that's, you know, just a little random information for you. It is in the Palatine that we find Lucas Shalley, born in 1670. Now, he would be the first of the Shirley family that we know about. Ah. Now, times are tough for those in that region, particularly those on the west side of the Rhine River in the middle region there. This area was faced with repeated invasions by French troops. There were some wars around there, like the Nine Years' War and the War of Spanish Succession, to name a couple. The area was devastated, creating financial hardship for the residents. Adding to the problem was a particularly harsh winter in 1708 that caused many vineyards to perish. So this led to famine mm. and other issues. And then mainly this is this area was mainly Protestants, those who had embraced Calvinism. And the French king, Louis XIV, was Catholic. And so when they would attack and they would be in that area, they would also persecute anybody who was not Catholic. Because his ultimate desire was to convert all Protestants back to Catholicism, even those in the Palatine. Palatines faced famine, war, and religious persecution during this time. Now, Lucas stayed there. He didn't leave. He powered through. But his children weren't so sure. In 1709, Queen Anne in England invited the Palatine the residents of the Palatinate to come to the British territories. That was nice of her. Yeah, we welcome you. And there's a couple reasons. Like she really wanted them in Ireland mm -hmm. because she was wanting to get more Protestants in Ireland. Ah. Ah, yeah. She had her reasons. So a mass migration began with families traveling up the Rhine to Rotterdam and then taking a ship to England, Ireland, or America. Sometimes it would stop in England, like at the Isle of Wight, and then go on. In 1709, 7,000 Palatines made the trip, with 3,000 going to the colonies right away. Most wanted to go to the colonies and thought they would end up there, like in Pennsylvania, the Carolinas, or even on a tropical island. <laughs> but a lot of them ended up in England or in Ireland. By the fall of 1709, though, the invitation was temporarily revoked with the understanding that if anybody else was coming past October, they were going to be sent back because England could not handle the sheer number of Palatines coming. It's estimated that there were 32,000 of them in 1709 in November in London area. Wow. But the mass migration resumed in 1710 that spring. Now, during this time and all this challenge, Lucas had gotten married to Anna Catherine around 1690 and soon had at least two children, sons Charles and Johann Ludwig. And actually, Charles was Carl. Yeah. But like I said, Lucas stayed there. The first of his sons to leave ended up being Carl. He was the youngest, I think, of the two sons. And he was born before 1700. But he did, He got married around 1725 to Anna Esther. So he and Esther had five children when they decided to follow the path that the earlier past immigrants had taken. The family likely trekked 50 kilometers to reach the Rhine from where they lived in Wurzweiler. Then they took a boat to Rotterdam. This was probably an early or mid um, 1739 and they did this with an infant who had just been born if their trip was like those in the 20 years previous to them the passage on the Rhine would have taken four to six weeks they would have had to pay tolls and fees to authorities in each territory that they passed as well so it was not for somebody who was super broke this was yeah. 
a long trip. Then once in Rotterdam, the family boarded the Robert and Alice with over 200 other people on board. The ship arrived in Philadelphia on September 3rd, 1739. You know, I have to wonder sometimes the history of these ships, like the Robert and Alice. Mm-hmm. What a lovely name for a ship. I feel it, sh- it has a history. I know it, it spent a lot of time traveling with people and taking immigrants to the colonies. Wow. And we'll cover that in a second, and you'll see okay. what I'm talking about. As soon as they arrived, Carl took the oath of allegiance to the British crown and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Within two years, Carl would obtain land. Then on September 29, 1741, their son, Johann Peter, was born. And we'll just refer to him as Peter because that's what he went by. He was their sixth child. Peter was baptized at Quita, this is a t- hard one, Quita Pahila Lutheran Church in North Anvil Tan- Township. And so if you're from Pennsylvania and I really screwed up that word, apologies, please let me know how to pronounce it correctly. <laughs> in what is now Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. The church is still there today, and it's known as Hill Lutheran Church. Wow. Mm-hmm. In September 1743, Carl's brother Ludwig and his family arrived in Philadelphia on the same ship, the Robert and Alice. Now, Carl and Esther would remain in Pennsylvania, but not all of their children did. Peter married Anna E. Kelker. I believe that was his second wife. Don't know much about his first, but he married her around 1771. I'm not sure where they met or even where they married, but their first child, a son, Christian, was born in Washington County, Maryland on February 12th, 1773. And by this time, Peter's last name was kind of a question mark. Hmm. It was sometimes Shally and sometimes Shirley. The name was evolving. I believe Peter may have served during the Revolutionary War based on a list of Maryland soldiers I found. Mm -hmm. But I'm not confident because I could find no other documentation. And he's not listed among the Sons of the American Revolution nor the Daughters of the American Revolution. Doesn't mean he didn't participate. It just means... I don't have enough information. Okay. However, his younger brother, Valentine, surely did. Valentine also found himself in a bit of legal trouble in November 1779 when a ground jury found evidence that he and 43 others were retailing alcohol without a license. Oh, that seems to be a Shirley family trait. Yes, and and I noticed there was some law breaking in this family. Little things usually, nothing huge, but it happened. It's a scoff law family. (laughs) By 1785, Peter and wife Anna had five children, Christian, Jonathan, Francis, Balser, and Mary. They still lived in Maryland where Peter worked as a miller. Not too long after that, though, the Shirleys moved to Virginia for a short time. After leaving Maryland, Peter, though, was ordered to repay 28 pounds he had borrowed in Washington County, plus five pounds in damages. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Now, I'm not sure as to why, but Peter could not stay in one place for long. But by 1799, he lived in Madison County, Kentucky. So they had left Virginia. Then in Jessamine County in 1806 and finally settling in Harrison County, Indiana, in 1813. Harrison County. Yes, it's right across from Louisville, right? Yeah, yeah. Huh, that's nice. And he probably died not long after the move there. There were so many Germans in that area, in southern Indiana, along the Ohio River. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot in, like, Cincinnati, and I know there was a lot in a lot of river towns. Yeah. 
Honestly, and and it, it kind of fits. It's just because I'm thinking St. Louis had a lot of Germans, Milwaukee, and I'm like, oh my gosh, these are all have something in common. Mm-hmm. Now, a few years later, parts of Harrison and Clark counties would make a new county, Floyd County, and this is where many of the Shirleys would live for a few decades. Hmm. As for Peter's children. I do not know what became of daughter Mary, but her sister Frances married a man by the name of James Runkle. And while they did move to Kentucky near her family, they just continued moving and settled in northern Missouri. Okay. Son Balser went to Tennessee and settled there. And son Jonathan remained in Virginia. Well, until sometime between 1850 and 1860, when he headed west, settling in Vigo County, Indiana, living with his son, Daniel. He was 84 in the 1860 census, outliving most, if not all, of his siblings. Sadly, his death was abrupt, despite his age, a couple years later, when he drowned while fording the Wabash River. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So an 86-year-old man fording a river, and he drowns. I guess I'm not too shocked, but it's just, that's not the way to go. No, no. And it's funny because, you know, the Wabash looks like kind of an unassuming river. Mm -hmm. It's not very wide, like the Ohio River, you know. Right. But it is deep and it is treacherous. And so, yes, it it is a river that has claimed many lives. That doesn't surprise me. Now, Brother Christian seems to have been the only sibling to live in the same area as his parents. Christian was born in February 1773 in Maryland. In November 1796, he married Rosanna Canote, daughter of John and Rosanna Canote, in Augusta County, Virginia. Not long after they married, they had their first child, John Allison. Now, that's the first correction. As you mentioned, her brother, John Addison, it wasn't Addison, it was Allison, because he was named after his father. Oh! Okay. But that's an easy thing for somebody to mess up because you wouldn't think that the person would have the name Allison because we associate that name as a girl's name today. Yeah. Records show that John Allison was born in 1796, but that's doubtful and we'll get to why. There's no specific date of his birth. I couldn't find anything other than a year and even that comes into question. Okay. Christian and his family first went to Kentucky, then finally settled in Floyd, Indiana, where he and Rosanna would spend the rest of their days. As far as I can tell, though, this was not a slave-owning family to this point, Mm -hmm. not in Kentucky nor in Indiana, where it was illegal at the time to own slaves. Christian and Rosanna would have four more children, Elizabeth, Henry, Denton, and Anderson. Christian lived a long life, dying at age 85 in 1858. Rosanna died three years later at the age of 84. Let's quickly discuss some of their children. We'll save John for last, because... That's the father of Belle, and we don't want to rush that, right? Right. (laughs) Their next child was Elizabeth in 1805. She married Oliver Wendell Holmes. Not that one. (laughs) I got so excited for a moment. I know. I did, too, when I saw that. And I'm like, nope. This one was kind of, you know, boring. They lived with children, (laughs) with many children in Indiana, and he was a farmer and that type of thing. He just has an unfortunate name to try to find when you're doing research because it keeps pointing you to the famous Oliver Wendell Holmes. Darn it. That is kind of funny, though, because um, can you imagine people saying, hey, I'm Oliver Wendell Holmes? And people are like, no, you're not. You know, <laughs> yeah. like when the president calls and tries to order flowers, you know, that's so <laughs> funny. Thing. The youngest, Anderson, struggled the most. He married and had at least four children, but it seems his wife, Nancy, died young. And he never remarried. I don't know what happened or why he didn't have the support of his children. But Anderson lived on a poor farm by 1900, listed as an inmate. And he ended up being buried in a potter's field alone. 
1903 at the age of 88, and his children were nowhere near him. Now on to Christian's eldest and the only one of his children to leave Indiana, John Allison, or Judge Shirley, the father of Bell Star. Now John was reported to be the black sheep of the family, and he didn't leave Indiana right away, but he eventually did, as we all know, because he ended up in Missouri. At the age of 22, he went to the neighboring county to marry Nancy Fowler. The marriage produced four children, John Finley, who went by Finley, Marianne, Elizabeth, and Preston Raymond. Marriage ended not long after the birth of Preston with a divorce. Then in May 1829, John married the second time, this time to Fanny Minich, who gave birth to daughter Clarissa in 1828. Oh. So they got married in 1829, and we believe she was born in 1828, or at least soon after they married. Oh. Poor little Clarissa, though, died in her eighth year. And that's how it was phrased. She died in 1836, and it said in her eighth year. So this is why I'm not sure, certain what year she was born, because some people might phrase the eighth year as she was starting. She wasn't quite eight, but this was her eighth year of life. Mm-hmm. And so she could have been born in 1829 oh. or 1828. It's hmm. I'm just not sure. Okay. This marriage was even shorter than his first, as Fanny divorced him in 1836 for adultery. Uh-huh. Men. Uh, yeah. Yes, men. I imagine that things were a bit uncomfortable in Indiana, but huh. John powered through, and this time he married a third and last time to Elizabeth or Eliza Pennington. Her last name was not Hatfield. Really? Yes, and we'll get to that because I know where that came from, but he was 41 when they married. She was 22. Oh, uh, gross. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of talk that Eliza was a Hatfield. I've mm-hmm. seen that stories that she was adopted by the Penningtons. I've also seen stories that she was a Pennington who was adopted by the Hatfields. Hmm. I've even read that the Pennings were just related to the Hatfield. And I can't find any evidence of who her parents were, much less a connection to the Hatfields. Because without knowing who her parents are, mm-hmm. I have no idea. And wow. even the Shirley Family Association had nothing linking her to them specifically. So that's a big question mark for me. Cause I wonder where it came from, the stories. And it's quite possible there was a relation there, but on the marriage record, her last name is Pennington. Okay. It's possible the story came about, though, due to the timing. That's why it came to. With the clash between the Hatfields and McCoys occurring at the same time as the fame of Bell Star. Oh. So it could have come out, oh, our family's related to them mm-hmm. in something. I just don't know where it came from, but it must have come from somewhere, and that's my only theory. Interesting. So one of my tricks when I'm looking at the um, census and particularly why I'm looking at a census before they listed everybody by name is I will look in the census for everybody with the same last name around the time the person is born. Mm-hmm. So I did that. I'm like looking for every Pennington. I'm looking for every Hatfield. There was a lot of Penningtons. Mm-hmm. I could not narrow it down to who her parent was. And I tried to find wills of these people to see if I could find her list on a will. Couldn't find anything. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if I went to a courthouse if I could find more, but. And this is entirely possible. Somebody just made it up. Yeah. It's just, I don't think we'll ever know for sure. It could be true. It could not be true. We just don't know. I just am unable to confirm or deny. So John and Eliza stayed in Indiana just long enough for Eliza to have their first child, Charlotte Amanda. Then the family moved to Southern Missouri, settling in Jasper County. Now for people wondering where Jasper County is, it's 
The largest city there is Joplin, and it's really close to both Oklahoma, Missouri, and Arkansas. It's right in the midst of everything. And you might know about Joplin because, uh, what, a decade ago, there was a horrible tornado that came and yes. wiped out most of the town. Yeah, because Joplin isn't what I call a big city either. <laughs> we used to drive through there to go visit my grandparents in um, Arkansas. So, yep. okay. The couple would have three more children before 1850, Bud, or John Allison Jr., Myra Maybell, and Edwin Benton. In the 1850 census, John was working as a farmer, and the real estate was valued at $600. Now, remember that John came from Indiana, where owning slaves was illegal. Well, John was no abolitionist, yeah. because in the 1850 census, he owned four people. He owned four females, ages 5, 28, 30, and 50 and two boys, ages seven and nine. By 1860, John's fortunes had changed, and Eliza added two more children, Mansfield and John Alba. He also was called Cravens. Oh. And actually, on the the 1860 census, he was listed as Cravens, and later he was listed as John Alba. And it's just, did his name change, or because that would be the third son with the name John. Mm -hmm. But that's also kind of the German tradition. It used to be Johan, you know, everybody was Mm Johan, and then the middle name was the name they went by. I don't know. The family now lived in Carthage, Missouri, and John ran a hotel. His real estate value was now at $4,000 and personal estate at $6,000. So he had seen a huge increase. The family had four people in bondage, two females ages 15 and 33, and males aged 9 and 19. And I know the name of one of those females, and we'll get there. Okay. So basically, in 1850, the five-year-old, they still owned the five-year-old who is now 15. Okay. I guess you could all guess where they stood on the issue of slavery. And as Zelda mentioned, they were Southern sympathizers. And they're saying living in a border state. So what can you do? <laughs> you can become a gorilla, like the Quantrill's Raiders that were brought up, or the Bushwhackers. So one of the things, as my grandmother, who is from Missouri, my grandparents on my dad's side were both from mm-hmm. Missouri, and we were talking about, you know, some family history stuff. And I was asking her, you know, did because this is Missouri, did anyone own slaves? And she looked at me and she said, oh, only the lazy English had slaves. And it's <laughs> like, well, apparently the lazy Germans did too sometimes. So yes. Because <laughs> I've seen lots of lazy Germans owning slaves through some of our research. Yeah, but just the disgust in her voice. Probably less at owning slaves than than people being lazy, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. And now this is when things get a little interesting. At the beginning, I mentioned that my family would make a cameo. Well, here it comes. Now, Zelda mentioned that John was just trying to do his business and people kept tearing it down and that's why they left. But I don't think that's why they left. Not exactly, anyway. Okay. My fourth great-grandfather was William Pleasant Scott. And it seems quite likely that he knew John Shirley and was possibly even a friend of his because the Scotts had moved to Jasper County by 1855 from Illinois. And William's son, my third great-grandfather, was William Pleasant Jr., who also lived in Jasper. When my dad was digging into our tree, he talked to a very helpful county clerk in Jasper who hooked him up with a very interesting court case. Ooh. Yes. And it's not one I've seen mentioned by anybody else on their research. So I don't know if she was just being super kind to him or they've just people have just missed this one. But it seems that once the war started, the Shirley's, Scots, and others who were pro-Confederacy stirred up some trouble. They were part of the bushwhackers, basically. Mm-hmm. So I guess the stirring up trouble, Bell came by it a little honestly. Ha, huh. yeah. 
On October 5, 1862, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Ann James alleged that several men, including my third great-grandfather, stole her property, and that on September 23rd, they had set fire to a dwelling house that burnt down along with the contents. Oh, my. Oh, and not only that... But they set fire to another person's house, burning it down. Oh, wow. Ms. James claimed $6,500 worth of damage. Oh, my God. That's like serious money back then. Yeah. And she went even further and claimed that William Sr., my fourth great-grandfather, and John Shirley (gasps) and two others conspired with the younger men as well as aided and abetted them. Oh, man. Yes. So somehow Shirley got out of any responsibility. Possibly because he left town. Wow. Because in July... One step ahead of the law. Yes. Because in July 1865, there's a note that all the men, save two, had absented themselves. Wow. Now, my family, like Shirley, left for Texas. But my family was not as smart as John Shirley. And they left all their land and possessions. And I know this because the courts took possession of the lands of my grandfather's. But they didn't take anything of John Shirley's because he had gotten rid of it already on his own. Wow. So basically, these men were likely bushwhackers, which are southern guerrilla fighters. Mm-hmm. Basically, they were kind of the opposite of the Jayhawkers to a degree. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were yeah. guerrillas, but the Jayhawkers were for the Union and the bushwhackers were for the Confederacy. What's, what I find so fascinating is that there's tons of stuff on his son being a part of Quantrill's Raiders. Mm-hmm. And I saw nothing about the dad being part of the guerrilla groups, the yep. bushwhackers or anyone else. And so... I find that fascinating. So it seems he was helping fund them. And that's what makes us believe that he was friends with my fourth great grandfather because he was in on it with him. Oh, yeah. So they had Mm -hmm. to be involved, which means they all knew. Even my fourth great grandfather probably knew the Youngers Mm -hmm. and the Jameses and all of those people at that time. Mm -hmm. So when I knew we were doing this, I'm like, Dad, you told me the story. Can you send me the information on that so I can look through it again? How interesting. Because I found it interesting at the time, but I didn't have all the details. So he sent me everything so I could look at it. Because my family got in more trouble later on for bushwhacking as well. So, you know. Like I said, they're likely bushwhackers. And I do know that my third great-grandfather, William Jr., was a Confederate soldier when these events happened. And don't feel too bad. He ended up becoming a prisoner of war later on, like good Mm. Confederate soldiers do, as we've noticed on this podcast. Yes. So likely by 1865, John and family left Missouri and settled in an area outside of Dallas, like you mentioned. Syene, is that how you say that? Syene. Syene. That's how I say it. I don't think that, I think that's how you say it. If you're curious, my family was not near them. They were up in Lamar County, Texas, which is along the border of Oklahoma. So their friendship did not continue. But they they were like a lot of people at the time. If they were bushwhackers, the people were looking for them. They headed south to Texas where it was safe for them. Now, John returned to farming by 1870. The war left him with some losses, but he was not destitute. His real estate was valued at $1,250 and personal estate at $648 in 1870. He died in 1876, likely at his home at age 80. Hmm. Eliza would live another 18 years, outliving all of her children, all of them. Wow. Yeah. Eliza died at age 79 of gripe and pneumonia. And I found the following about her death and her family. Hmm. It's from... A newspaper article that was posted at the time of her death. This came from the Times uh, Times Herald reporter, 
And remember how I said I know the name of that slave that was the female who was five and then 15? Mm -hmm. I believe her name was Annie. That's a lovely name. So this is from her obituary. And then I'm just going to read this all because it's all fascinating. Mrs. Eliza Shirley died yesterday at the home of Mrs. Pointer, 636 Pacific Avenue in the 73rd year of her age. Mrs. Shirley was remarkable as being the mother of a family of desperados who figured in many of the lurid scenes of the pioneer days in the Southwest. You know, I find humorous is that they considered Missouri, Arkansas, and Oklahoma is Southwest. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, Aunt Annie Shirley, an ex-slave who belonged to Mrs. Shirley, lives in a little house of her own near the Central Roundhouse. To a Times-Herald reporter, she gave the following facts concerning the family. Mrs. Shirley's maiden name was Eliza Pennington. She was born in Louisville, Kentucky about 1821. She was married to John Shirley in Greene County, Indiana in 1837. A certificate of this marriage is in the possession of Mrs. Pointer and was seen by the Times-Herald reporter. When you mentioned that she died of the grip, do you know what that is? That's influenza. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it was so just influenza like a... and pneumonia makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, before I keep going, I, I do want to mention some of this information is wrong. <laughs> And as I've already discussed some of the facts. Anyhow, so let me continue. Mr. and Mrs. Shirley went to Carthage, Missouri, where they resided until 1861, when they came to Dallas County. It was at Carthage they bought the colored woman who furnishes this information. Upon their arrival in Texas, they located at Grapevine and continued there on a farm until 1866, when they went to Mesquite. But the following year, they finally settled at Syene. Here, Mr. Shirley died in 1876. Six children, four boys and two girls, were born of this union, and it appears that they thoroughly caught the wild, daring spirit that moved the men of the order during and just after the war. The conditions that made the Jameses and Youngers were not without effect on the rising generation of Shirley's. I'm going to change it because I don't feel comfortable calling her colored. Okay. Um, the old black woman says the oldest daughter married a man named Thompson and settled at Matamoros, Mexico, about 30 years ago. All the rest of the children, with the exception of the youngest son, John Alva, were desperados and died with their boots on. Ed Shirley, who was a noted horse thief, was shot off his horse in Chambers Creek Bottom by a man named Palmer from Collin County in 1866. Manfred was killed in a fight with the officers in the Indian Territory in 1867. Allison M. joined the Confederate Army and was killed in a guerrilla skirmish in southwestern Missouri in 1863. John Alva, the youngest, has not been seen for years and his mother said he was dead. Belle was born in 1850. At the age of 16, she ran away and married a desperado named Jim Reed. A year after their marriage, Reed was killed near Paris in a, flight, in a fight with officers. A few months after his death, the widow laid aside her weeds and became the wife of an Indian named Sam Starr and went into the desperado business right and under the name Belle Starr. Made quite a name for herself in the annals of Southwestern desperadoism. <laughs> um, Sam Starr was killed at a dance in the Choctaw Nation in 1876. After this event, Belle was much in the company of John Starr, brother of her late husband. Late one evening in the fall of 1891, Belle Starr took a horseback ride near Eufaula, Indian Territory. As she was riding along alone, admiring the gorgeous sunset, this is nowhere seen to better advantage than the southwest. A whiff of smoke issued from the branches of a cedar tree in a ravine nearby. The crack of a rifle followed, and Belle Starr, trembling a moment in her saddle, fell to the ground dead. The horse walked back to town, the empty saddle carrying the news. Nobody ever knew who fired the fatal shot. The old black woman says that her master was rich at one time and left a great deal of property at his death, but that his widow had no money since, and she soon ran through with what he left. She and her youngest son spent six years in traveling, spending money in regal prodigality. 
for several years before her death she was in very straitened circumstances and for the last two she lived upon the charity of the floyd street methodist church congregation with some assistance from the first methodist church the black woman says she has reason to believe that the wild blood of the children was derived from the pennington side of the house at any rate when her mistress and master had a falling out he always threw it up to her that the children got their meanness from her oh my the burial <laughs> yeah the burial of mrs shirley took place at 10 a.m today in trinity cemetery and this was in the dallas daily times herald on january 5th 1894 oh my gosh now clearly there were several dates that were wrong yeah. several what cracks me up is he calls her the old well the term he used is not appropriate so but i changed it to old black woman but he kept calling her old uh-huh. she would have been 39 <laughs> oh my gosh yes wow she was not old wow <laughs> so i was curious about annie shirley and we'll talk about her later because i that's the research I found today when it hit me. I never looked into her. Hmm. So we will discuss her a little bit later. Cool. Before we get there, let's talk about Belle's siblings, shall we? I would love to. Now, the the obituary covered some of it, but it also needs a fact check or two because of so many dates were wrong. And I believe either the reporter messed it up or Aunt Annie Shirley confused a few dates. Mm-hmm. Belle's oldest full sister. Now, there was a lot of half-siblings, and we mentioned them, but I'm not going to get into them. I'm just going to do her full siblings this time. Okay. Her oldest sibling was Charlotte Amanda. She married Jesse B. Thompson in 1857. Then by 1860, they lived in Indian Territory at the Creek Nation. Oh. Now, I can't find them after that, which fits the narrative that they ended up in Matamoros, Mexico. I've seen notes that they died by 1894, but I've seen no evidence either way, Mm. nor if they even had children. Oh, and Matamoros, Mexico is just across the border from Brownsville, Texas. Okay. So it wasn't like deep in Mexico. It was Mm -hmm. pretty close. Now, John Jr. or Bud was born in 1842 in Missouri, but he died when he was 21. According to various sources, he was a bushwhacker and acted as a scout, obtaining the rank of captain. From HistoryNet.com, Bud's fate was sealed in June 1864 when the house in Sarkozy, Missouri, where he and a companion were being fed, was surrounded by federal militia. The two men bolted. Bud was killed climbing a fence. Wow. The friend escaped, then relayed the information to Bud's family. Wow. And you also mentioned Edward Benton earlier. He died at even younger age, being just 16, two months shy of his next birthday. Mm-hmm. In the book Star Trek's Bell and Pearl Star by Philip W. Steele on page 25, he says that Ed, who was born in December 1849, was charged with horse theft cases there in Texas on the May 3rd, 1866. And then on October 24th, 1866, he was shot and killed by a man named Palmer. Yeah. So that part was correct from Aunt Annie. Now that leaves us with Mansfield and Cravens. According to Aunt Annie, Mansfield died in 1867 in a fight with officers in Indian Territory. But the date is wrong. Oh. Because in 1870... Mansfield lived with his parents in Texas. On the, he was right there on the census. So I'm sure it happened, his death, but I'm not sure when that happened. Okay. It was likely between 1870 and 1880. And then today, as I go, you know, I never looked into Annie Shirley, and I'm really wanting to learn more about the former slaves and what happened to them. Mm-hmm. I need to look into her. I found the following. Ooh. So Annie was born in 1845 in Missouri, and I found her in the 1880 census with children. She had five children, George William, age 16, James K., age 11, twins, Sterling Price and Robert E. Lee. That's interesting. I found that one very interesting. And daughter Laura, four. 
all born in Texas. Hmm. Now, the oldest would have been born during the time of slavery when it still existed. That would have been George William. Now, she was working, doing washing and ironing. And it said that her parents were born in Virginia. And she's listed as black and a widow. I could not find a marriage record. I couldn't even find her in the 1870 census. Wow. Her children, though, are listed as mulatto which means that they were mixed race, Uh which means it's likely that their father was white. Uh Not guaranteed, but white. So I'm like going, oh my gosh, is it possible that one of John Shirley's sons was a father or even John himself? So I actually have a couple answers on this. (gasps) Okay, I'm very intrigued. I, I found a couple of her children's death certificates. And the father's name was listed. Okay. Tell me. I'm dying. George Washington's death certificate, he lists Mansfield Shirley as his father. Whoa. Yeah. As does Laura. So George was born in 1864. Laura was born in 1874. Oh. Which means Mansfield would have had to have been alive at least around then, if that's true. Mm-hmm. Because she has Mansfield as her father as well. Interesting. Now, Robert Lee's father, which would be the same as Sterling Price's father, was listed as John. Now, was this John Alva, the youngest, Mm -hmm. or was this John Sr.? And they were born when? They were seven. So they were born in 1873. Okay. So one child was born while she was a slave. Yeah. But the other children came after. Wow. That poor woman. Yeah. But what I found even more interesting is she considered herself a widow. Mm-hmm. So it makes me, I have so many questions. Was it possible that Mansfield was the father of all these children mm-hmm. and she considered herself married to him? Mm-hmm. Even though it wouldn't have been legal and wouldn't have really happened. Well, and Mansfield never married, did he? Or am I forgetting? No. That? Yeah. No, he never married. So wow. was this a love match? Yeah. Wow. Which it would make more sense if John wasn't involved in any way, you know, because that that's interesting. That's really interesting. Especially since the oldest and the youngest had Mansfield as their father. I just really don't see her having a relationship with one of his brothers in between. Right. At least not willingly. I mean, that's the thing is like, if we don't know what went on, we don't know what went on because it's not like a poor Previous, you know, uh, an ex-slave in Missouri mm-hmm. would have necessarily had a ton of opportunity. Right. And then, you know, she comes to Texas with him probably because she's forced to. She's their slave. And she's probably been with him since she was close to being a baby mm-hmm. or soon after. I mean, since she was a little child. So how much of this was also manipulation right. to a degree? Mm-hmm. You know, she might have thought of herself as being in love, mm-hmm. but he might have just seen her as right. someone to use, mm-hmm. as was often the case back then. Right. Wow. But I have some answers on that. And so if anybody happens to be related to Annie, Shirley, I know a little bit about your tree. Well, and, you know, Anne of Green Gables was Anne Shirley, which I find kind of just a little oh, cute coincidence, you know? Yeah. But I have to say, I given that he, Mansfield, never married, this gives a bit mm-hmm. of weight to that it was a relationship. Right. And it makes me think it was a relationship. And maybe she knew exactly when he died. Mm-hmm. But she didn't give that information. She gave out misinformation on purpose. Right, right. For all we know, he was wanted right. at some point. Exactly. So it's just wow. an, a curious tidbit. That, that just... is interesting. You find the coolest stuff. Yay. 
So I'm glad I made that quick little, let me check and see if I can find her. Mm -hmm. And I did. Okay. I will say that the oldest son, George, lived to be like 88 dying in 1951 and the kids didn't necessarily have that many children of their own there were some but Mm -hmm. and i believe i saw a note that lee had spent some time in prison as well Mm. robert e lee okay so if he is you know related to mansfield it just runs in the blood and he had no (laughs) way to fight it okay now we'll go to the youngest cravens or john alva he disappeared like i can't find him anywhere and like aunt annie said that he he died so i'm inclined to believe her mm-hmm. so now let's circle back over to miss bell and by the way you did a fabulous job on her whole thing oh thank you i really enjoyed that very much um some but there's some information you might not have had Ooh. or just kind of missed tell me more because i know going through any evidence on bell like you discussed is very confusing because there's like so much misinformation mm-hmm. so much information mm-hmm. i think i have most of it as i go through my notes here i, I wrote down some just in case of mistake so I thought I would go from there her first husband was Jim Reed his name was James Commodore Reed and he was the son of Solomon Reed and Susan Brock Mm. and he was born in 1845 in Metz Missouri and they got married in November 1866 as you said but you know I saw that she was 16 on one thing she was 18 when they got married he was 21 Uh okay well that's (laughs) okay yeah they had three children not two ah I'm very proud of me on this unless I'm misunderstanding something because We know about Rosalie Uh or Pearl and James Edwin or Eddie. But on the 1870 census, I did find the family in California Uh where they lived in Los Nietos, California, which is in Los Angeles County. And in their home, they had a baby girl who had just been born in April that year by the name of Eliza. Really? And Eliza is the name of her mother. So I'm thinking it's got to have been their child. Yeah. But she must have died as a baby because they didn't have her... By the time they came back east. Oh, that's so sad. But I couldn't find anything on her death either. But there were at least three children. Only two made it to adulthood. Oh, my. And as you mentioned, she the kids got left in with their grandparents in Texas so they could do their stuff. Um, <laughs> now, you missed a husband. Which husband? Because she never married Cole. Cole Young. Yeah. Yes, there's a lot of rumors at the time. And I think she helped spread these rumors. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure Pearl did as well. Mm-hmm. That the father of Pearl was this man by the name of Cole Younger, one of the Younger brothers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't true, though. Mm-hmm. And even Pearl said it wasn't true mm-hmm. but at the same time other times I think she just wanted to play it up because it was part of that mystique that whole myth and the legend mm-hmm. but I found a marriage record <gasps> Ooh. for May 15th 1880 where she married Bruce Younger the uncle of Cole Younger okay I'm glad you found that marriage certificate because I came across people who said she was married to Bruce and mm-hmm. and then other people disputed it. And I thought, well, I'm not seeing where there's an actual, like I couldn't find a date or anything. Right. But you found it. <gasps> Gold star. Yep, they got star. married in Labette County, Kansas. Gold now, star. the marriage is was sh- super short mm-hmm. because in June 1880, she marries Sam Starr. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Did she divorce Bruce? Did she? I don't know. Oh, my. Maybe there was an annulment. Maybe, I don't know because... Wow. Or was she actually married to Bruce the whole time? Wow. Or was this a marriage record and they never went through with the license? Wow. It's one of the two. That's interesting. Now, Bruce was not the outlaw that his nephews were. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some reports that Bruce died in September 1880 in Colorado Springs. But I, I like to dispute that for everybody who's reporting that because I found 
newspaper articles noting that he was very much alive after 1880, such as an arrest in November 1883, and notes that he was in Kansas towns in 1881. So he was not dead, people. (laughs) Not yet. I know. I'm pretty sure he died probably in the 1880s, but it wasn't by September 1880. It probably was in Colorado. Oh, I did find an interesting mention, but I don't know the truth of this because I didn't get a chance to research it, that James Reed, her first husband, was like a distant cousin to Jesse James. And that's kind of how the Reeds and the James brothers got involved. Hmm. But I don't know the truth of that. I never got a chance to research it because I saw that today. Um, Oh, and then you mentioned her husband, Jim July. Well, Jim July was James July's star. Yes, I did. I forgot to talk about that. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Yes. So I'm, I'm not going to go too into that, but he was the brother of Sam Starr. Yes. So, and I believe they were the sons of Tom Starr. Yes. And July Starr um, was actually adopted. Oh, that's right. Now let's go to her children. And we're going to start with James Edwin Starr or Eddie. Eddie was like his parents in many ways. <laughs> he was born around 1871. He lived a lot of life in a short time. Around 1895, he got married to Jenny Cochran, but was a very short marriage, as we'll discuss in a minute. Evidence of trouble for Eddie began with an article from Our Brother in Red on July 14th in 1888. Mm. Our Brother in Red was actually a Christian and Native American newspaper out of Oklahoma. So here's the article. Another man shot. News reached our town Thursday morning of the shooting Wednesday night near Brushy Mountain of Ed Reed, son of Bell Star. The ball entered the face near the nose and came out at the ear, leaving an ugly and possibly dangerous wound. Oh my. Reed is at the house of Mr. Wallace. Yeah. No particulars further than the statement of Reed, which is he was traveling through the country and stopped in the woods to spend the night. While he was asleep, some unknown party shot him. Wow. I'm not sure I believe his story, but, you know, I think more than likely he knows who shot him, but he's Mm -hmm. just not going to share it. Then in 1889, at the age of 18, after his mother's death, Eddie was arrested and sent to federal prison in Columbus, Ohio. Since he was the son of Bell, a lovely article covered his arrival at the prison with others that appeared in the Cincinnati Inquirer Inquirer, on August 3rd, 1889. Ed is a bright-looking boy and has a common school education. The right side of his face is powder-marked from effects of a shot. The bullet, a 44 caliber, went in the side of his nose and came out through his left ear. It has affected his hearing. He was sentenced for seven years for larceny and receiving a stolen horse. The warden assigned him to work in the cane factory. And we'll get more into this in a bit, but Sister Pearl would start a new profession to raise money for his legal counsel so he could get out of prison. (laughs) Yeah, and when he found out about the profession she undertook, it created a permanent wedge between them. Oh. He was released in 1893. I'll I'll, I'll tell you how later, because that will come out. But um, by May 1895, he was married and making headlines for criminal activity. In fact, he was a reputed leader of a band of outlaws, all from Indian Territory. Naturally, Ed denied this, saying that he intended to stay out of trouble. No more prison for him. Thank you very much. Now, for reasons that elude me, Ed was given a 60-day U.S. Marshal's Commission by the Fort Smith, and that's an Arkansas court, in the fall of 1895. Hmm. Reportedly, Zeke and Dick Crittenden, who are brothers and were police marshals themselves, went to Wagner, Oklahoma, and which, well, let me rephrase that, went to Wagner, which is now in Oklahoma, but it was Indian Territory at the time, and shot up the town while drunk. Mm. Eddie went to Wagner to arrest the men and restore peace. 
and killed the men instead, saying it was in self-defense. There seems to be some questions as to the real motive and facts because Zeke and Dick had pursued Ed in the past for cattle and horse dealing before he became a marshal himself. Wow. Yeah. So Ed faced no consequences and was eventually made a deputy marshal. Then on December 14th, when he went to arrest whiskey peddlers J.N. Clark and Joe Gibbs, Eddie was killed. Hmm. Although I read a report that Ed was drunk and headed home. Then when he came back to the saloon, he was killed. So there's various stories. Was it he was going to arrest them and they overtook him? Hmm. Or was he causing trouble and he got shot for being drunk? Wow. We may never know. But let's go to his sister, Pearl, or Rosie Lee Reed. And actually, as she was known in the papers, and this is fun when you're having to research in papers, having to put multiple names in there just to get all the information. Mm -hmm. For the longest time, until after her mom died, she was listed as Pearl Younger. Mm -hmm. Because they were playing up the story that she was Cole Younger's daughter when she was, in fact, not. I really enjoyed learning about Pearl I think she's possibly more badass than her mother was mm-hmm. and definitely more notorious. <laughs> Pearl disappointed her mother when at the age of 18, she was pregnant and unmarried. The father was reportedly a man by the name of Robert McClure. So Belle sent Pearl to her relatives to have, it was like to her, um, the in-laws, Jim's parents okay. to have the baby. And then she spent some time in Arkansas with aunts and uncles. And that's where she had the baby. And the baby was born in April 1887, and she named her Mamie. But the baby was given up for adoption, and she was not adopted until she was two years old. So I have questions that I can't get answers to. Mm-hmm. Well, so here's the thing. I know a little bit, a tiny little bit, about orphan adoption back in, like, the 1800s. Oh, and please tell us more. So there were a lot of children up for adoption in those years because people died young, oh. had large families, things like that. And if a... If it was known that a baby came from an unwed mother, especially Mm -hmm. if it was a girl, that people would hesitate to adopt that child because, you know, with genetics, you know, eugenics being what they were, people would assume that this too, that coming from a wild woman, that young girl might turn out to be a wilding too. And so Uh. it was very, uh, it was more difficult to get babies of unwed mothers, especially girls, adopted out. Thank you. That explains that. Because I'm like going, how does a baby go without getting adopted, you know, a brand new baby? And that explains uh it right there. Yep. Pearl ended up returning to her mother's side after the birth of the baby. And and she was with her until her death, basically. Uh Now, while her mom was living, like I said, Pearl was listed as Pearl Younger in all the papers, even though she was Pearl Reed. So I'm going to do this kind of in timeline fashion because there's so much information. So then her mom dies and her brother is arrested. Around the same time in 1890, Pearl got married for the first time to Will Harrison, but they divorced in 1891. I've seen reports that she couldn't be faithful to just one man and that was part of the problem. Oh my. With her brother in prison though and a need for money to get him out, Pearl became a prostitute or a sex worker in Van Buren, Arkansas at Madame Van's house. It was a brothel. And this was her first foray into this business. And I say first because she stayed at it for a long time. So this was occupation that upset her brother. But she had raised the money and Eddie received a presidential pardon in 1893. Oh my. Yes. And then he comes out to Arkansas to see her and discovers how she earned the money and then refused to talk to her. Mm. And didn't talk to her. They never resolved it before he died. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah. 
Now, not only did she earn enough to help her brother, but she earned enough to open her own brothel, Pearl's Place in Fort Smith, Arkansas. That is a girl with a work ethic. She was. Again, I should know that sex work was legal in Fort Smith until 1916. And that was the same time her brothel ended up shutting down. Mm -hmm. Now, on Wikipedia, it states that Pearl was only implicated in one crime in 1911. It may be semantics, but that's not exactly true. 1911 was just the first time she was convicted of a crime. (laughs) So here's a list of crimes I found in the paper and other notable newspaper items while in Arkansas. In 1898, a customer died in the house of ill fame by morphine overdose. Mm. In her house of ill fame, I should say. Although the paper called it a suicide. Mm. I, I think it's more likely an overdose, but there you go. In 1902, along with Nettie Stanton, she was charged with disorderly conduct. They might have avoided going to jail that night had they not called the police officer a name (laughs) but they got attitude they were not too thrilled and so he was not happy being called a name and put him in jail that night that is funny in 1906 she was charged along with her barkeeper atkins with beating up a girl hattie smith for leaving the brothel owing 75 dollars for boarding Mm. so somebody decided to leave the sex work but she owed money Interesting. Even though the sex work back then was legal, it doesn't mean it wasn't corrupt to a degree. Absolutely. In 1907, a case involving one of her girls named Mamie McDonald claimed a guest stole money from a room. She took back the testimony and said Pearl beat her for taking back the testimony and saying that she was perjuring herself. Now she claimed she could not return to Pearl's place again. But Mamie McDonald was living with Pearl in the 1910 census three years later. Hmm. I guess they've had things up. Yes, they did. Oh, and I forgot one. In 1904, I found the following article. And I found this one a little amusing because she was a mama at this time. And we'll get into her kids in a minute. And she was a fierce mama. And the name of the article is Who Shot Jared? Man with bullet hole through hip pocket was oblivious. I have questions Mm -hmm. that he was oblivious. You'll be very entertained by this. On Thursday night, Jerry Martin went into the red light district, backed by a healthy jag. He became the guest of Pearl Star, whom he hit with a buggy whip. Then he struck her baby, and that caused Pearl to mobilize her anger, and she told him if she struck the baby again, she would make his body a deposit for lead. Jared thought the threat such a good joke that he gave her the merry ha-ha, and Pearl countered with a shot. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, the bullet struck a bottle of whiskey in one of Martin's hip pockets, but did not ruffle the hide. (laughs) This morning, Martin and Pearl were arraigned before Judge Edmondson. Him for breach of the peace and her for assault with intent to kill. So then they bring Jared to the stand. And this is (laughs) how the examination went. Who shot you? I wasn't shot. Didn't a woman shoot at you? Yep. Haven't you a bullet hole in your pants? Yep. Then you were shot, weren't you? I wasn't hit and therefore I was not shot. Were you drunk? Guess I was pretty well saturated. (laughs) Did Pearl shoot you? I don't know. But you were shot. Nope. Shot at then? Yep. Did you see the woman who shot you? Wasn't shot. That's funny. Where did the bullet go? Into the atmosphere. (laughs) And you saw the woman who shot at you? Yep. And don't know who she is? Nope. Wasn't a whiskey bottle in your pocket broken? Yep. How far off was the woman? About 10 paces. You are a pretty big mark and it's strange that she missed you. Oh, it is pretty hard to kill a real good man. (laughs) 
<laughs> Did you strike Pearl and the baby? Don't remember anything about it. Wow. So then apparently one of the inmates of the house testified that the man did strike the baby twice and also struck Pearl. And the court asked, what did he do after she took a shot at him? Gosh, replied the witness. He went through the fence and he was in such a hurry to get through that. He did not try to jump over, but just crawled through. And so the response of the court was that Mr. Martin was all to blame. Any mother who will not fight when her baby is being abused is no mother at all. Yay! I love that judge. And so she she got off She of should that. have. I kind of oh, wish yeah. she off him because I'm like, you hit a baby, you just die. Just yeah. die. And with a whip. Yeah. With a whip. Oh, my gosh. No, that's not good. But I just the humor of that. Yeah. i just going, nope. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. So then we get to the 1911 case that put her in jail for one year. And she was jailed with, again, here's a familiar name, Mamie McDonald for robbing a store. Wow. Those two were like quite in the cahoots. Yes. I think they were good friends and... Who knows? Okay, so let's go through the rest of Pearl's relationships and children. Her first daughter, Mamie, was given up for adoption. We will come back to her. Then she had Ruth Reed Kegler, who was the daughter of Charles Kegler and was considered illegitimate. They weren't married. And she was born in June 1894. Then she did get married again. Her second husband was Arthur Erbach, an immigrant from Germany. And they got married in October 1897. Wow. And it could have been a good match. I don't know. He was a gambler. And they did have a son in August 1898, also named Arthur. But her husband died when the baby wasn't even one month old of typhoid malaria. Oh, that's awful. And baby Arthur never reached his first birthday, dying in July 1899. Hmm. And I I saw a note somewhere that it might have also been due to malaria. Mm -hmm. Her next husband was Del Andrews. That's her third husband. Now, on Wikipedia, it says they never married. That's wrong because I've seen the marriage record. Mm. They married in May 1902. In November 1902, their daughter, Jeanette Steele Andrews, was born at Fort Smith. But there was trouble in the relationship. Dell was a gambler who was often broke and unable to help provide. Mm. Now, Pearl was still running her brothel, but he kept getting arrested. (laughs) I mean, he got arrested in May 1903. I found this article. And and according to the police chief, he he arrested him on principle. (laughs) There was no charge. He just arrested him. That is hilarious. So by October 1904, Pearl was seeking a divorce, alleging non-support and cruelty. For several weeks before the filing, Dell had been arrested and fined multiple times. My guess is Pearl was fed up of what she was, that she was kept having to pay to get him out of these situations. And he wasn't providing any funds mm-hmm. either. What I did find amusing is that five months before um, she filed for the divorce... Dell had been told to leave town. Oh, wow. This is from the Fort Smith Times on May 5th, 1904. Dell Andrews, the gambler, has been given two days in which to leave the city. He is the husband of Pearl Star, who says that he annoys her, that she does not desire him to visit her house, and which he has been doing against her will. Andrews says that when he came here, he had $2,000 and was a welcome visitor at the house of his wife, that she now wears a pair of diamond earrings, which cost him $200 per... And now that he is to the bad and money manners, his value as a husband is dissipated. Wow. Yeah. Then the divorce. That's so sad. Your value has dissipated. Yeah. His value is dissipated because he was gambling away all his money. 
Then the divorce came before a judge in April 1905, and this one entertained me to no end. This was also in the Fort Smith Times on April 12, 1905. Chancellor Borland on Wednesday took up the divorce case of Bell Andrews against Dell Andrews. He was go- getting along swimmingly and apparently thought that Dell Andrews was a very naughty husband, as the plaintiff avered in her complaint that she had tried to be a loving and loyal wife to the defendant who did not appreciate her efforts. It then became known to the court that the plaintiff was none other than Pearl Starr, and he cut short the proceedings and instructed the plaintiff's attorney to bring the plaintiff into court Thursday morning in order that he might hear her testimony. Hmm. So because he realized, oh, wait, this is Pearl Starr. I need to see her here. That's how I read that one. Yep. After prostitution was deemed illegal in 1916, Pearl left. I think it was kind of a deal with the city. Like, Mm -hmm. If you leave, we're not going to prosecute you. Mm -hmm. If you stay, we will. And she ended up settling in Douglas, Arizona. Ah, I know where that is. Where is that? It is in the middle of effing nowhere. Um, But it's sort of the southeast part of... Okay. Like, kind of near Tucson, but not, like, right next to it. Okay. Well, she died in the Savoy Hotel with a stroke at the age of 56. Now, reports are that she died alone and unknown, but I do believe her one of her daughters was living with her at the time. So I don't think she was completely alone. Oh, that's nice. Now we're going to discuss Pearl's children, the grandchildren of Belle Star. We'll start with Mamie, the daughter who was adopted out. Okay. She was adopted around age two and given the name Flossie Pearl Lehman by an older childless couple named David Eppel and Nanny Garten. David was an immigrant from Germany who was 55 when Flossie was born. His wife Nanny was originally from Indiana and 47, so they really were an older couple, a childless couple. Flossie grew up in Newton, Kansas. There's evidence that she knew who her birth mother was, as there's a picture of her with Pearl shortly before Pearl died. Oh, wow. And that's probably why we know about Flossie's existence. Flossie seemed to have a happy childhood, although her father would die in 1904 when she was 17. Her mother died 18 years later. Flossie married local Kansas man by the name of Charles Frederick Hutton in May 1907. Before they married, at age 15, Flossie attended training to be a school teacher and was active in that career until they had their son, Robert Eppel Hutton, in 1908. Charles worked as a railroad clerk, and the marriage had rough spots as Flossie filed for divorce in June 1937, mm. and they were separated, I think, for a time, And but eventually the petition was withdrawn in October 1939. Flossie died at age 56, the same age as her mother. Wow. Yeah. And so they only had the one child? Yes. Okay. Flossie's son, Robert Hutton, would first marry Grace Lucille Kennedy in 1926. They had daughter Flossie Hutton in 1927. And I have some pictures of some of the people I'm talking about today, so they will be up on the website. Oh, fun. Their marriage was short. By the end of 1930, Grace was living in Colorado. And I believe daughter Flossie was with her soon after that. Because Robert married again in 1935 and had no more children. And his daughter wasn't living with him in 1940. Okay. So that's what I have for Flossie. And now we're going to go on to Ruth Kegler. Ruth Reed Kegler was her name. And she married a man by the name of Ralph Arthur Walt on September 19, 1911, in Sebastian County, Arkansas, which is where Fort Smith is. He was 21, she was 17, nothing untoward. They didn't remain in Arkansas, and they ended up moving to St. Louis, where Ralph worked as a railroad clerk. They likely moved there not too long after their daughter, Valeska Myra Walt, was born in November 1912. 
Before 1924, though, Ruth and Ralph divorced. Mm. Valeska stayed in St. Louis with her father while Ruth headed west, settling in Reno, Nevada. That's west. Yeah, where she married Louisianan Charles Edward Druitt. In In the 1930 census, Edward and Ruth are listed as musicians. As I dug, I found some ads in Reno's papers like Fun for All at the Old Corner Bar in Carson City, New Year's Eve, Ruth Druitt and her orchestra. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. And then there was a brief article in the Nevada State Journal on the 2nd of October, 1937, saying Ed Druitt, sax blower several years ago who deserted the music racket when liquor returned under repeal, has opened his own joint in Carson City. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now, several people who have created trees like to claim that Ruth married a man by the last name of Robinson after 1930 and that this Robinson died in 1940. Mm. But this can't be. Oh. As Ed Druitt died in October 1940, in Jenna, Louisiana, with Ruth mentioned as his widow. Oh. Now, she was still up in Elko. Mm-hmm. She was up in Elko, Nevada at this time. But it says his, you know, he leaves his wife, Mrs. Ruth Druitt of Elko, Nevada. Wow. So she wasn't married to a different person at that time, at least not yet. Hmm. Ed Druitt died at the age of 43. Now, it does appear that Ruth did marry A. Robinson sometime and somewhere (laughs) before her death in Elko, Nevada in January 1979, as that was her last name at the time. Okay. Wow. But who, when, and where, I don't know. I couldn't find anything. Wow. Her daughter, Valeska, I'm not sure if she ever had a relationship with her mother after Ruth left for Nevada, but Valeska remained in St. Louis, first marrying a man by the name of John Campbell in 1935. They divorced in 1953, not too long before he died on Christmas Day day that year in a car accident oh my it was called a single car accident so that brought up questions for me and i looked into it and it turned out somebody was coming at him and he jumped a curb and ran into a tree oh no trying to avoid hitting somebody else so it was a single car accident but not the way you think of when you go "Ooh, yeah she married again and she lived a long life dying at age 88 in 2001 wow and did and she had children well i don't know okay Partly because all I have is information going to the 1940 census, Mm -hmm. and she didn't have any children as of that time. The 1950 census comes out next year, (laughs) so I'll have answers for some of this then. (laughs) Um, The third daughter is Jeanette, and she likely stayed with her mother until her death. After her mom died, she married Herbert Farr. He was an immigrant from England. And they got married in Tombstone, Arizona on November 18th, 1925. And that's not too far from Douglas. From my no, have you ever been to Tombstone? No. You should go. It's very much a touristy sort of town. When they do a little Wild mm-hmm. West shootout on the main street. And it's and they've got a really cool graveyard. So it's kind of appropriate she got married there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> and Douglas is actually on, which I didn't realize that when I was in Douglas, but it is on the border with Mexico. So it's oh, south okay. of Tucson. Okay. By 1930, Jeanette was divorced and living down the street from her sister Ruth in Reno. Her occupation was entertainer. While in Reno, she met California native Kenneth D. Scott, and they married around 1935. Now, Kenneth was involved in the business of gambling. He operated table games from 1938 to 1968, even owning the Pioneer Hotel in Elko, Nevada. Wow. And it seems that Kenneth had the urge to write. Oh, my goodness. This will be good. Yeah. His books were not bestsellers, Uh. but he wrote several, some of which are now considered rare books worthy of collecting. 
I saw one priced around $300 Goodness. to buy. So his second book was called Bell Star and Velvet, as told by Jeanette Scott. Interesting. I could not get a hold of the contents of that book. It's so rare. Uh-huh. I wanted That's to read awesome. parts of that so much. After over 30 years of marriage, the couple divorced. Jeanette died at age 68 in Elko in 1971. Her ex-husband, Kenneth, kept writing books and died in 1990 at the age of 84. And that's the family tree of Myra Maybell Reed, younger star, star. But wait, there's a little bit more. Yeah? Because you discussed who killed her, there's another theory out there, which you briefly mentioned, that her neighbor killed her. Mm-hmm. Now that would be Edgar Artemis Watson. Edgar Watson had leased land from her when he first arrived. And apparently it came to Belle's attention that he was wanted for murder in Florida. She was not comfortable with him living on her land knowing that. So she told him he needed to move. And this was in November 1888. And the theory is that he he was so upset that he sought vengeance for this. Now, this is where I think we have enough for a mini-sode. Because I decided to look into Edgar Watson. I needed to know more. And by the way, I have the criminal jacket on him. Oh, yeah. Because Jim Starr, as soon as Belle was um, killed, he went and found Edgar and took him in and arrested him. He got a warrant from the court and arrested him Mm -hmm. and took him to prison. And he was questioned. And I read through this testimony, kind of, Mm -hmm. after a while I started skimming. Because there was so much and it was so mixed and you almost have to, like, draw maps to understand what people are saying. Uh A lot of people said they went and to go look for tracks to see, you know, who it was who did it. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking if as many people went to look for tracks, did, no wonder they couldn't figure out because there were too many people looking for tracks and leaving their own. Right, right. But anyhow, when you do learn about Edgar, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit on this, maybe you might change your mind and think that he did it. Well, it was interesting because there were a couple of articles that said there were tracks leading back to his place that were his foot size mm-hmm. and right. that his his those same tracks were found around where Bellstar was killed. So there's actually a mm-hmm. fair amount of evidence that he is the one who did it. Right. I, I was writing this up so I could go over into all of the stuff with him, but it was going to be so long. That's why I'm like, oh my gosh, we're going to have to do a mini-sode on this one. Uh-huh. Um, I'm in. That sounds fun. He completely denied it, but I will give you a little taste about him. He was born in 1855 in South Carolina, and his mom was very uns- upset with her husband. He was an abusive man mm. and took the children and fled to Florida. And so he's in Florida. He gets married. His wife's named Jane. And then they come up to, you know, Indian territory because of this charge that he stabbed somebody or whatever. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the premise of everything. Guess what? He got arrested again after he was cleared of Bellstar's murder for horse thievery. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he went to jail, but he apparently escaped or something. Wow. And then he went down to Florida. But are you ready for his nickname and why we have to do this? Bloody Ed Watson. (gasps) He is thought to be a serial killer in Florida. Well, now we have to do him. Yes. So like I said, I was writing this up, ready to go over this and get into this. But I'm like, oh my gosh, there's so much. So much. I mean, it'll be a mini-so because I didn't get 
too much, but his family's kind of interesting. His father was not a good guy. Oh, wow. And, but he was, here's a little taste for everybody. So you're going to have to listen for the mini so when it does come, because we're going to have to record that soon, that he would hire workers on his plantation. He owned a sugar plantation. He was quite wealthy after a time. He would hire people on his plantation, then on payday would gun down the entire crew and dump their bodies in the bay. And that his end came because the people in the town finally got fed up and they took him out. Oh, my God. Yeah, he was not a good man. Oh, my God. And what a screw loose, you know? Oh, yeah. To, like, yeah. <laughs> Whoa. So the more I read about him, the more I'm going, oh, my gosh. I think he did kill Belle. Wow. He was not all there in a good way. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, this was fascinating. Yes, this was a lot of fun. Yeah. And we tend to think of the 1800s as being kind of buttoned up. And this mm-hmm. is just blowing that apart, you know? Oh, yeah. I think things were a lot more free in some ways than they are even today. So are is there anything that you've been watching lately or anything that you've been reading or listening to? Well, you know, I started a new job. So that has yes. actually captured much of my imagination, trying to like <laughs> be, be onboarded and watch HR videos. Lots and lots of HR videos. So you're watching HR videos. Would you recommend them? (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me tell you, I've learned so much about sexual harassment and discrimination. So I'm grateful for this knowledge. Um, And I could tell you backwards and forwards how our benefits work. So that's exciting. Mm. Um, Other than that, honestly, I've just been kind of rewatching some old favorites. You know, things like Death in Paradise which is honestly one of my favorite shows ever. It's Have you heard of it? It's a British show. And no, it's I a murder mystery show that's set in a fictional island of Saint-Marie, which is really like Guadeloupe Island down in the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And it's delightful on every level. It's funny. It's emotional sometimes. The actors are phenomenal. The characters are great. So if you... if it's on Amazon Prime if you want to ca- okay. if you want to catch up on it. But it's really it's this quirky British detective ends up in the middle of an island solving mysteries and I love it. So how about you? Anything fun you've been up to? Well, we, we've started a new thing with our family. So I was thinking about this with my kids and stuff. When I was a kid, because, you know, it was the 70s and 80s, we didn't have that many TVs in our house. And we certainly didn't have cable mm-hmm. or the ability to stream mm-hmm. whatever we wanted to watch. So we always at night watch TV as a family every night. Mm-hmm. It was like our thing. Well, our family doesn't really do that per se. Our kids will go and they might watch something on their thing. My husband and I will read a book or while they're doing that. And then they go to bed and then we start to watch TV. So we started on weekends forcing the children, which really drives them a little crazy, to watch TV with us Ah. for an hour each night on the weekends only. Uh Uh-huh. And so we are forcing them to watch Little House on the Prairie. Aww. That, that's the part of the struggle, though. I mean, there's not really a lot of family shows nowadays that I would want to watch. Right. I mean, they're either just badly made or they're just not there. Mm-hmm. There's just too many issues. So I thought, well, let's try this. And our youngest loves it and can't wait until we get to see the next episode. Oh, nice. And then our two oldest, my middle one kind of like, whatever. And my oldest like, I really like it, but I can't tell if she's being sarcastic or not. Uh-huh. So, you know, they're, they're hard to read. But we're doing that. And we do that at least one night. We watch that. And then the next time, like last night, we started watching The Princess Bride. And we're going to finish oh, it up tonight. Nice. 
That's so, such a good movie. So it's just kind of forced family time for them where we're mm-hmm. all as a family watching something. I mean, we do stuff together. It's just I kind of miss those days when I was a kid watching some TV programs with my family. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was such part of that era. Mm-hmm. And nowadays it's not the same. And I just kind of wanted to bring that back. I think that's lovely. Well, and it's so easy in modern times when everybody's got their own screens to just everybody's mm-hmm. often in their own corner. Um, There's one time I was visiting a friend who has two children and we got back from her daughter's graduation uh, from high school. We walk in the house and immediately everybody just went apart, grabbed their screens and were in mm-hmm. separate rooms interacting with other people. And I was just like, it was fascinating. And then I was like, anybody want to go to the park? And the kids were like all over that. So we right. let mom have some peace and we went down to the park and ran each other ragged. But it was yeah. just like, it's just so easy now to get away from people. So it is. And so it's kind of like forcing forced togetherness, mm-hmm. which at first, I think even my husband at first was like, really? Because uh-huh. I mean, this is his one downtime. He likes to get on his phone just uh-huh. for a little bit. I mean, he's not one who's on his phone all day long. That's just not uh-huh. him. But it's like, okay, fine. And I looked at him because I have to put down my stuff too. I can't be sitting yeah. there with my computer doing research while I'm watching this. Right. And I'm enjoying the time. That's nice. Although a couple of them can't seem to stop talking. And then I wonder, you know, their critical thinking skills sometimes like, why is that happening? Well, I don't know. Why don't we watch and find out? Of course I know. I've watched this the series like five times, I think. So I'm in rerun, you know, yeah. but I'm not telling them. Uh-huh. No. Nope. <laughs> they need to find out themselves. I think that's good. That's so funny. So. Well, that sounds like fun. And I bet, you know, they will look back on it someday and it'll be like this heartwarming thing. Well, and I thought with Little House on the Prairie, they could learn a little bit about history, too, at the same time. Mm-hmm. Kind of an idea of what things were like mm-hmm. and how they, how good they actually have yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Now, you don't have to haul water, kiddo. Yeah. I mean, it's very subtle, not me going, oh, look, look what you don't have to do. But like, oh, look, they have an outhouse. That's where they use the bathroom. Oh, <laughs> That's funny. Oh my gosh. Well, very cool. Oh, they cool. had a dirt floor? That's so funny. Well, thanks everybody for joining us. And we will, I, I, I'm going to say that we will see you next time, but we can't see you. So, um. yeah. <laughs> but leave us a note. Let us know you exist. It's fun to yeah, respond let, to people who are Let listening. us know what you think. Yeah. And if you have anybody else you want to hear about. And the next time we get together, we're going to be discussing Terry Peter Rasmussen. Dun, dun, dun. It was, yeah, it was a request of a listener. And mm-hmm. so we're fulfilling the request. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.